Women in Wellbeing is an Eden Center podcast, highlighting emotional well-being and mental health through Jewish sources and interviews with experts and activists. Our host, Karen Muller-Jackson, is a certified Matan Marala Halakha, Jewish educator, writer, founder of Kifun Lashirut Guidance Program for Religious Girls, and creator of Power Parsha. Just as the mikvah waters create the opportunity for renewal, we hope the insights shared here will serve as a springboard for discussion and rejuvenation. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Eden Center Women and Wellbeing podcast. This month's episode for Chodesh Nisan is in memory of Eliyahu Hanoch ben Aaron Shlomo, a devoted and loving husband, father, and Zayde, by the Feldman, Katz, Karish, Levine, and Whitefield families. Today, we'll be talking about a topic which I think will be relevant to pretty much everyone, and that is sleep. Why do we sometimes wake up feeling revived and other times tired? Why do some people fall asleep easily and others can struggle for hours before falling asleep? Do we all need the same amount of sleep? And last but not least, what do Jewish sources teach us about sleep and wakefulness? Whether you are a young parent, a teenager, a parent of a teenager, a woman going through menopause, or just plain struggling with sleep, I hope today's episode will be interesting to you. After my short Torah thoughts, I will be speaking with sleep expert, Dr. Debbie Capel about her work helping people sleep better. She'll share some insight and practical tips. I'm particularly interested in the subject of sleep. And really, we could talk about sleep any month of the year. But I've chosen to talk about sleep this Rosh Chodesh, Rosh Chodesh Nisan in particular, since there is a nice connection between sleep and Pesach time. First, we stay up late for Seder night to fulfill the mitzvah of Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim. Also, when we read Megillat Shir Hashirim on Pesach, we see that it contains a verse about sleep. The interpretation of this verse helps understand the symbolism of sleep and wakefulness in Jewish thought. Of course, everyone needs sleep to survive and be healthy. Generally speaking, there are varying approaches in Jewish sources regarding how much effort should be put into taking care of our physical bodies. There's a well-known debate between Hillel and Shammai, where Hillel says it's a mitzvah to go to the bathroom and keep good hygiene and do right by our bodies. Whereas Shammai says, we do what we have to do in this world, meaning we care for ourselves, not because it's a value in and of itself, not that it's a mitzvah in and of itself, but in order to help us be able to learn Torah and do mitzvot. I believe there's a similar dialectic regarding the sources which talk about sleep and wakefulness. In Pirkei Avot, Rabbi Dosa ben Harkinus says, morning sleep is one of the things that puts a man out of this world. Not a particularly uh, complimentary saying about sleeping in in the mornings. Similarly, the 11th century work, Chovot HaLevavot, Duties of the Heart, encourages us to be sparing in sleep and says this is praiseworthy behavior. The Talmud, Brachot, likens sleep to a 60th of death, and this is one of the reasons that we, that we say a special prayer before going to bed. We say the nighttime Shema and Hamapiel, and the Talmud explains that even Torah scholars, whose Torah learning should generally protect them, need to say these prayers before going to bed, since the night is a time of danger. And of course, upon waking, we say, we are thankful to God for returning our soul to our body. We are not taking it for granted that each day we wake up. 
Talmud Brachot also contains a midrash which characterizes David HaMelech as a horse dozing before Chatzot and then rising like a lion after Chatzot to sing songs of praise to God. This midrash suggests that sleep is a necessary thing, but ideally we should be wakeful as much as possible to learn Torah, to daven, to do mitzvot. There are also sources which relate to the topic of troubled sleep. This is particularly resonant since I think today, in all likelihood, our sleep is more disturbed than any than for any other generation throughout history. Uh, in Shira Shirim, which we read on Pesach, we read the following verse: "Ani yeshena v'libi er kol dodi dofek," and the pasuk goes on: "I was asleep, but my heart was wakeful. Hark, my beloved knocks." The sages understood this and most of Shira Shirim as a love story, a parable for the relationship between God and Am Yisrael throughout history. The female who is seemingly sleeping in this verse is understood mostly to be the Jewish people, and the dode, her beloved, is knocking on the door, urging her to open up the door. The sleep here is not complete sleep. It is a sort of sleeping state in which she can still hear the knocks on the door. And so the interpreters, the biblical interpreters say as follows. Rashi explains, when it says I slept, it means when I was confident and calm during the first Beit HaMikdash in the first temple times, I despaired of worshiping the Holy One, blessed be he, as one who slumbers and falls fast asleep. Here, the one who falls asleep has been complacent in their service of God during such comfortable times. But my heart was awake, says Rashi, the Holy One, blessed be he, who is the rock of my heart and my portion, is awake to guard me and to benefit me. This interpretation is very insightful, I believe, for human nature. Luckily, during during first temple times, God protected the Jewish people while they were in a state of semi-sleep. Uh, also in life, there are times when we can be sort of um, somewhat asleep, not really going through the motions in life and not really having full intention and um, focus in what we are doing. The Midrash also likens galut, exile, to be like a state of sleep. And of course, the opposite of that, uh, the redemption is like an awakening. We also see a different approach to sleep, perhaps a more balanced approach, uh, which maybe fits a little bit more with our modern sensibilities and ideas about sleep in the Midrash Barishid Rabbah. There we hear the Rabbi Shimon ben Eliezer says about the verse in Barishit, behold, it was very good, right? He says, and behold, sleep is very good. The Midrash goes on to ask, is sleep very good? That can't be. We associate sleep with people who are uh, who are giving into temptations and not um, not having motivation and waking up early to to serve God. However, says the midrash, rather it is important to have sleep. A person is needs sleep so that they can stand and work hard for much Torah. Um, a little bit later on in the Middle Ages, we have the Rambam in Hilchot Deot, who wrote all sorts of things about healthy lifestyle. And one of the things he writes there is that we should get eight hours sleep per night. Well, this is certainly something to strive for. So what are the benefits of sleep? How much sleep do we really need? What are the tips for couples with different sleep cycles? 
If you're as interested in this topic as I am, please stay tuned. Up next, I'll be speaking about this with sleep expert, Dr. Debbie Capel. Dr. Debbie Capel works as a sleep doctor as part of the New York Presbyterian Medical Group and is director of the Sleep Center at NYP Westchester. She trained at Columbia College and Columbia Medical School in New York. She completed her medicine and pulmonary critical care residency fellowship at Columbia New York Presbyterian Hospital. Dr. Capel is boarded in internal medicine, pulmonary critical care, palliative care, and sleep medicine. She's also an old friend. Hi, Debbie. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me, Karen. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> Speaking of sleep, it's the afternoon for me and the morning for you. So, so uh, we're we're virtually experiencing people's sleep cycles. How appropriate! Um, so, I'll begin by a couple of throwing out a bunch of random thoughts on sleep. Uh, sleep is a significant topic, I think, for many people, for many families. Anyone who's had teenagers is amazed by their ability to sleep endlessly. Um, couples can be out of sync with each other. Sometimes you have a morning person or a night owl. Um, and our Hagim, our Jewish calendar sometimes uh, can like disrupt our sleep patterns in a way that can be a little unsettling, whether it's uh, here we are coming to Chodesh Nisan, where we stay up on Pesach night and tell the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim. Uh, some people's satyrs go quite late, and yet we have to wake up in the morning <laughs> uh, still. And Shavuot, we stay up all night learning Torah. Um, Sukkot, some people sleep in the Sukkah, which, you know, don't always get the night, best night's sleep there. Um, and so we see that sleep uh, plays an interesting role. Uh, the Jewish sources were aware of, of sleep and sometimes disrupted sleep on purpose, which is kind of interesting. Um, so I'm excited to jump in with you as soon as you'd uh, shared with me that you have become uh, more involved in working and help, helping people, aiding people with their sleep challenges. I've been excited to, to, to talk with you here. So we'll jump right in. Um, why is it that different people have such different experiences with sleep? Um, right. So, so sleep is so complicated for everybody. And most people go from you're a sleep doctor, how bizarre to, oh my God, I have 10,000 questions, or can I tell you about every person that I know in my family? So it's because it's so much multifactorial. So not um, not everything about sleep is like an equation. We all know the more we sleep about, think about sleep or stress about sleep, the harder it is to sleep. It's like, it's not like it's something you can put effort into and then it gets better. It's, um, it's very much um, so many different things play into it. Our stress levels, the things going on in our lives, the things that even before Pesach, some people have pre-anxiety like myself um, mm -hmm. about Pesach and that could affect sleep. So any form of stress can affect sleep, the noise, the light, our level of exercise, our our nutritional state, so many things all come into it, our age, our, our gender, so many things can affect our sleep quality. As you said, adolescents have a different sleep time um, and sleep schedule. Older people have different sleep challenges in every stage of our lives. Sleep can be affected. Um, many women going through menopause, the night sweats, other things. It's just so, that's part of what makes it so interesting and so fun is it's not at all static. It's very much changing and changing even for people through time. 
Interesting. And so would you say that this comes about more naturally for people? Is it something that um, perhaps they learned, learned behavior from growing up or maybe sometimes had to wake up at certain time? I, I, sort of do you establish behavioral patterns and then find it hard to break them? Um, where does that so come from? Sorry to interrupt. So yeah, so there's a tremendous amount of genetic um, predisposition to start with. And like anything else, we can make it better or worse in the way that we um, form our habits or um, are raised or sort of manage ourselves. So there definitely are people who are prone to be, like you said, morning people. There are some people who are more night people. There are the people who function best in our clock society in terms of like wake and sleep time. And then there are the people who always struggle with sleep or who have insomnia for whom sleep is always sort of a challenge and not necessarily a happy part of their life. But it is a third of our day. So it's sort of interesting how we often don't spend a lot of time talking about or thinking about or necessarily dealing with what we spend a lot of our life doing on sort of a numbers level. Hmm, interesting. Well, while, since this is an Eden Center podcast, and we talk here a lot about um, the wellness, the well-being of women and couples, um, I think this is probably a pretty relevant topic for many couples. Um, sometimes you, right, you find that one partner, it goes to sleep uh, a lot earlier than another. And it can be quite convenient when, you know, someone has to wake up and be with a baby at a certain time of day or night or get the kids out to school. But for the relationship and for intimacy, it can pose problems and challenges. What what do you, what have you seen with couples who are out of sync with each other? And, and what are sort of guidelines and tips you might have right so the, the whole thing with the couples is so interesting because it's again it's like everyone has their predisposition and then there's just life work children home deadlines things like this that are constantly sort of um, changing what we're um, doing and sleep can be so personal so for couples they've started looking at like how does that work um, so obviously if you're in sync with your schedules then both partners are more satisfied with the relationship more generally because you have more of that quality time, you're in sync with one another. We sort of all like can picture like an older couple on a swing in the evening on a front porch watching the sunset and sort of syncing their clocks and being sort of in harmony. And that's such a beautiful goal and image for most of us. And certainly if your partner and you have a similar predisposition or um, synchronized sort of early person, late person, sort of regular person, um, or even insomnia sort of energy, then that can sometimes make things easier because you're very much in sync, although it can be a challenge if you're trying to divide up the shifts of, you know, life as it is in a household. But certainly there's a lot, there are more and more studies looking at those things. And for some couples, not sleeping in the same room is the only way they can be happy with one another. And for most couples, I think they can find a way to certainly go to sleep together. I'm just looking at my notes, but certainly they've shown that for women, especially um, being able to go to sleep with your partner, or at least spend some, you know, quality time in bed before in bed before going to sleep and feeling like you have that sort of down routine at the end of the day, improves satisfaction with the relationship and also improves even your subjective assessment of your sleep, which is so interesting. And then, um, 
for, and of course it's like by relationships, by, by directional. Like if you're unhappy in your relationship, especially for women going to sleep at night is often where life breaks down. Mm. And interestingly for men having a good night's sleep makes the next day a better day for them in their relationship and in their mood and in their sort of view of how their relationship is going. So it's sort of, it's a little bit different, it seems for men and women, but I think for both members of the couple having, that's what they've shown is that having that time. So if you're um, someone who likes to get up early or has to get up early because of family, life, work, whatever. Um, sometimes if the other partner who might be up late doing stuff or that they have to do, or just because they're not able to fall asleep, having that evening time together where you're tucking in your partner, if you will, or having that sort of time and then quietly tiptoeing out and having a nightlight. Like there are ways you can mm. bridge the gap without necessarily trying to transform yourself into a different clock person than you are. Um, so interesting, you know, and it's so wonderful to talk about these things, which I think people are almost nervous or insecure about, you know, that if, if couples don't go to sleep the same time every night, that's, you know, that's, that's terrible, but actually it's, it's not, it's about just communicating and working it out and thinking it correct. through and being creative. So correct. Like if someone's a super loud snorer and for their bed partner to be in the same room for them would be like, you know, absolute torture and they would be so unhappy with that other person. And it's interesting because there's like a lot of sort of quiet sort of shame around it because there's a lot of cultural expectations about sharing rooms. Um, but there are, I think they've shown like about 25% of couples actually don't sleep in the same room. And it's not because they don't like each other. It's wow. just that's the only way they can sleep happily and be happy with one another. So it's just sort of interesting. There's a lot of expectations and like anything where there's a lot of expectations and cultural mores, if you um, aren't able to talk about it, then it can become a source of friction. But if you're able to work it out in a way that's, you know, positive for both partners, then that can be better. It's sort of like an insomniac being like where the partner is trying to say, like, I want to help you go to bed early. I'll leave you alone. You can go to sleep without me. When right. for most insomniacs, the best thing they can do is spend less time in bed and not go to bed till they're tired. So it's sort of like, how do you um, how do you make sure that you're helping and not hurting in your way of trying to be, you know, caring to the other person? Absolutely fascinating. Bouncing our individual needs and our couple needs. So fascinating. Right. Wow. Um, so this, uh, so this also plays into our next question, which is, um, I've also heard from a lot of women going through menopause, let's say in particular, or, or you know, so as they get a little older, um, that they're waking up earlier and earlier and they feel anxiety either before they go to bed or when they wake up. And I'd like to ask you, as you mentioned about in the run-up to Pesach, what are the different ways that sleep is linked to our physical and emotional health? Um, so I guess you could look at it again with, with sleep, everything goes both ways. It's never, not never like a one way, like this, then this versus like, so we know, for example, that people who don't sleep well, or even um, people who miss a night's sleep, like you can imagine a time that you've traveled and the flight was delayed and you only got to sleep three or four hours and you had to go through your next day. You know, what was your mood like that next day? What was your memory like? What was your temper like? What, you know, how did you feel in general? Like, obviously your anxiety, your mood, your ability to handle things, your reaction time, your decision-making is completely different when you're sleep deprived versus when you get adequate sleep or enough sleep for you. Um, is totally different. And similarly, when people are going through periods of grief or stress or other things, often sleep breaks down because it's hard to downshift at night. And so 
Um, it's not all one or the other, but certainly we know that when you're not able to get enough sleep, you're going to pay the piper the next day and it's much harder to function. And the last thing you want is for it to become like a cycle of, um, you know, chicken and egg and chicken and egg sort of mm. falling into each other. Um, but yeah, certainly losing sleep is, has a tremendous amount to do. And then in terms of like, what are the, you know, things we try to do for insomnia. So usually the last thing we recommend is pills because they are just not, not superior to good sleep hygiene and good, um, sleep habits, which are harder to do, but probably work better. So it's all the stuff you kind of know that maybe your mom told you, or maybe they didn't, but they sort of sent you the message. So a cool dark room, blackout shades, white noise machines, um, really important to stick to routines. Bedtime routines are not just good for kids. They're good for grownups too. Mm -hmm. um, light and the screens and all our technology obviously don't help at all, both in terms of being stimulating or bringing up things that you don't need to necessarily start opening up Pandora's box before bed um, that you can't solve. Um, I was reading an article with something about how for a lot of couples, you know how like the the, I don't think a very common advice to newly married people is don't fight before bed, which is sort of an interesting thing to suggest <laughs> as if there's a time to fight or as if like, you want to fight before bed. I think it's more just like perhaps not opening up topics that can't be solved in 30 minutes before bed or might be agitating before bed because yeah. it's not happy for either person to have things that you're ruminating on or riled up about. Um, if that if that makes sense to you, I don't know what your experience is about that, but I think yeah. that that's probably more what that's about than, of course, like not finishing a discussion before trying to get to sleep. Yes, I totally agree. I totally agree. <laughs> you, you just touched on you just touched on the the screens, and I realized I hadn't actually asked you a specific question about that in advance. But I'd love if you talked more. Many of our listeners are also parents and also ourselves struggling with this reality of just being on screen so much and what's the best practices for screens, be it phones, laptops, you know, yeah. both adults. Well, there's best, yeah. There's best practices and then there's life, of course. Yeah. So the things that most help us set our clock or no night from day is darkness and exercise. So for most of us getting light in the morning helps keep us sort of regulated having too much artificial light in the evening helps, you know, really mixes up our brain and makes it harder to turn off just in terms of the light. And then of course, in terms of whatever we're looking at, sort of making us maybe, you know, um, more alert or more upset or more wondering or thinking or however you wanted to, to think about it. So for most people, obviously before bed, it's better to avoid screens for at least an hour or two before bed. And for a lot of, especially teenagers, I think regulating their screen time, regulating their ability to turn it off, um, the peer pressure or the desire to know what's going on or what the kids would call FOMO, which my teenagers would probably kill me for even saying, but they're <laughs> missing out, of course, you know, it's sort of the importance of turning it off in some way, shape or form. Certainly a teenager should not feel on call overnight to know everything going on with their little friends. And it's probably better if they could tell, um, their colleagues and friends that they are not, you know, just do the, uh, the nighttime alert or whatever, if they don't feel comfortable following attorney, turning it off so that the friends know I'm not going to answer if you text me and it's not because I'm mad. Yes. So it's not have a microdrama about it. Yeah. Um, so, and certainly in terms of like, you know, books versus, you know, um, lighted things. And I think that's why the Kindles have more of a, less of a backlight and stuff, because that's where you can comfortably read it before bed, but a lot of people are reading on their iPads and so forth. So right. having that light, there also are, um, I don't know if you know this, but there are um, apps you can put on your computers 
um, where the backlight changes from blue to red light, which is less um, confusing to our brain. So a lot of people who, for whom their work involves multiple, multiple screens, they'll suggest that the, um, they put those clocks on the screen so that the backlight on the screen starts to change in the evening, so it's less alerting. And then in the morning, if it's brighter, that's okay, because maybe it'll help you to sort of get alert and be good through the day. Mm. Fascinating. And I know one of the things that is one challenge is that kids like people like to use their phones as alarms in the morning. And so they put their phones next to their beds. And then it's very hard not to, you know, look at it just before bed or, uh, right. Right. or if you wake so that's up. That's why I suggest at least a do not disturb function is sometimes helpful. Yes. And um, for some people, there also are, um, there's a lot of sleep apps on there. I mean, we, we, I don't think we had meant to necessarily touch on it, but there are so many that will like wake you up at the right time, tell you if you're snoring, give you a sense of your sleep quality, things like that. Mm. Um, give you grades, like for people who are competitive, like it might tell you like, oh, you slept a good amount of time. You get like a 96 for last night. And for some people, <laughs> you know, like that works for them. For other people, it's more stressful. I don't know, or they just don't care. Like, but it's interesting. There's a lot of technology out there that's trying to be helpful versus um, hurtful. So it's of course not, not anything is all one or the other. Absolutely fascinating. So one last question. Um, we're coming up to Pesach. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, that people, you know, sort of stay up late and then don't get enough sleep. And you mentioned just one night, you know, but certainly cumulatively. What is, we've heard so many different theories, what is, how much sleep is truly enough sleep? Uh, and maybe it varies uh, per person. Right. So, I mean, obviously everyone is different. Um, there certainly is probably a sweet spot for most of us, which is around seven hours um, that most grown-ups need. Kids are totally different. It varies by age, and obviously, like newborns need more sleep. You know, I think they have only like seven or eight hours of wake versus sleep. But anyways, mm-hmm. um, yeah. But for most grown-ups, it's around seven hours, and it's actually really fascinating how that works. So, like when you talk about sleep deprivation, there's long-term sleep deprivation, there's short-term sleep deprivation, and um, we know that like people who sleep on average less than five hours, they don't live as long. People who sleep more like nine or 10 hours don't live as long. Like, there's certainly a sweet spot in there in terms of cardiovascular health, mental health, um, weight, um, diabetes. Like there's so much out there, hormones. Like when people talk about low T um, in men, that's also tied to sleep. Like there's just so much that's tied in there in terms of getting that um, hopefully ideal time. And in terms of like missing a night's sleep, you know, with all nighters or whatever, like Shavuos or, um, Pesach staying up late, you know, obviously one night of sleep is not enough. It usually takes at least two, if not three nights to catch up. Like you can't bank sleep. You can a little bit bank sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, in terms of makeup sleep, that's much harder. Um, so yeah, you certainly before a night of sleep deprivation can try to sleep more, but for most people cleaning for Pesach, doing Zika's time, it's like doing a lot of stuff. Like the last thing you're doing is getting more sleep the week before Pesach, which right. is I think why Pesach is so hard yes. um, for a lot of people, especially if they're doing it themselves. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Wow. Well, Pesach is also the time of redemption. And, um, and, and so, you know, I think a lot about and actually, I mentioned in my Torah thoughts that that sometimes in the Midrash sleep is exile is likened to sleep and redemption is likened to wakefulness. And so perhaps our bracha that we can share with people is that they should they should feel that as this new Jewish year begins from Rosh Chodesh Nisan, um, in biblical terms, the new a new year, 
um, people can move from, you know, feeling uh, a lack of control or, or stress from sleep and hopefully find that they sleep well, sleep enough and, and, um, and feel they have some redemption with their, with their sleep. I think this is something that a lot of people struggle with. So I want to thank you so much for joining us and wish you Kodesh Tov and a Chag Sameach. Thank you. You too. This podcast is hosted by the Eden Center, whose goal is to reinvigorate the ancient female ritual of mikvah as a sacred space for women and use it as the natural platform it is to connect to Jewish women's health, well-being, and healthy relationships, enhancing Jewish women and family life. We invite you to visit our website, www.theedencenter.com, to learn more about our work in making mikvah relevant, welcoming, and meaningful. This episode is a product of the Eden Center. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider sponsoring a podcast in dollars or shekels at bit.ly backslash E-D-E-N-P-O-D. Additionally, give us a five-star rating, share this podcast on social media, and encourage others to subscribe.